Morning, how we doing? Yeah, okay. Greta, good. I like that. Everybody do what Greta did. Get, get into it. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. I should say up front, we are talking about Philadelphia today, but we will not be talking about Philadelphia sports teams. Some of you need to just hear that up front and understand we're not going there because it will only make me mad. <clears throat> Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. Read along with me. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Father, there's been a lot of loss in our community this week, and we lift up the grieving and the hurting. We pray, Lord, for a vision of heaven to fall afresh upon us, that the sorrows and tears of this life for the Christian are kept in a bottle you remember them, and you'll reward us for keeping your word, holding tight and fast to the promises of the gospel. And I pray that those promises would come home to those who really need to hear them this week. Grant them a vision of the new Jerusalem where these things won't happen anymore. There will be no more tears will be no more loss. There will only be fullness of your presence. Love will be the atmosphere of heaven. People we will never have to say goodbye to. We trust you, Lord. You have the keys of death and Hades. Death and life are in your hand, and you have never made a wrong decision. We may not understand it. It may be confusing. It may be hard but we want 
to believe and to trust. So help our unbelief, we ask. Father, as we consider this letter to this church long ago, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us today. We believe it is for us. We believe you have something to say. We believe that through a, a humble mouthpiece of a preacher, Almighty God is speaking. So long as it accords with your word. So I pray, Lord, that my words would be in sync and would be in line with what you want to say and that you would speak through me and that these brothers and sisters would not just hear me, but they would hear you. Speak to their hearts, to their minds, to their lives. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We come to the sixth letter, the sixth report card Jesus sends to his churches and to all churches, all times and places. And like Smyrna, which if you remember, it was a while ago now, letter number two, um, Philadelphia doesn't receive any critique or rebuke. It's just encouragement. So right away, I want you to catch something important that's not necessarily on the surface. Um, it's implicit in the letter, and that is this. Not all sin needs to be corrected. Not all sin needs to be corrected. This church is doing well. They're generally healthy. But do you think these Christians in Philadelphia have stopped sinning? <laughs> um, do you think they are problem-free? That they every Sunday they get together, they sit you know, in a circle, crisscross applesauce, and uh, sing Kumbaya doxology together as someone on a guitar leads them through that. It's doubtful. I don't think that's likely. Yes, they're saints, they're healthy spiritually, but uh, if you want to know if there's going to be problems, what do you have to add to make sure there's problems? Just add people. Just add people. And there's still people here, so we know there's problems. And yet Jesus doesn't mention it. He doesn't mention anything. I mean, you'd think this is your opportunity, Lord. Like if you just wanted just a few things on the side, like, hey, remember this and do this, not that. But he doesn't do that. It's just encouragement. That's it. I see your works. I love you. I know you love me. Continue on. Man, would our churches, our homes, and our office places be different if we learn from Jesus on this point? Many of us get real chatty when given the chance to criticize, you know what I'm saying? Like, maybe you're not a big talker, um, but when you get asked, like, what didn't you like about something? Ho, 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 just settle in. How much time do we have? I, I, I got a lot to say. But you say, well, what did you like about it? What's something positive you can say about this person or, the, the you know, whatever it is? Yeah, it's fine. It's all right. It's good. 
Often we don't have a lot to say on that side of the coin, but when it comes to criticism, we're happy to chat, we're happy to talk. Uh, it comes easy to us. Part of becoming like Jesus is learning what is worthy of criticism. What is worthy of correction. Because clearly, not everything needs to be addressed. In fact, sometimes correcting someone or letting them frustrate you actually has the opposite effect of what you intend. So you want them to be more like this, but you getting frustrated, criticizing, correcting them actually makes it worse. It's counterproductive. So I think the Lord would say, be free. Be free of the burden of feeling like you have to correct and fix Everyone's sins and problems and annoying habits. Like, can you just put the toilet seat up, please, for once? It's okay, you can let it go. We don't have to correct everything. I think that's what the Lord is teaching us. I, I was sitting with some friends the other day, and, and the conversation came up about a, a new restaurant, and uh, they were asked, they had visited the restaurant, they were asked, well, what did you think? And you could tell it wasn't 100% satisfaction with their experience at the restaurant, but they chose not to include any of that criticism. They, they, they paused and they just said, no, this was good and this was good, and they just left it at that. It wasn't anything worthy of correction or criticism. And that was good. Yes, sometimes you need to be direct. Sometimes you need to speak the truth, to challenge someone, something. Some of you need more faith to do that. If there's a cockroach on the steak, I mean, you might want to mention that to your buddy who's going there. But look at how wise Jesus is. He has the wisdom to discern that sometimes people need a firm word, and that's all, Laodicea. Sometimes you... I mean, you could, you could pick out something uh, uh, good and, and share something good, but sometimes that's not most effective or what someone needs. I'm sure there were Christians in Laodicea who, you know, they're still doing good things to some degree. But he knows what they need to hear is just a firm word. That's it. Sometimes they, people need a hard word and a soft word, or a soft word and a hard word, like Thyatira. And, and sometimes people just need encouragement. That's it. As a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a coworker, how often is it a word of encouragement from you, period? Full stop. I love to listen to you pray. It's just an encouragement to me. Or... I love to listen to you pray. Sometimes you go on for a little while. You get, a, you get a little bit breathy there in your prayers. You see the difference? I guess it makes a big impact to just stop. You don't have to say it. Even if it's true, is it helpful? It's not just a matter of is it true, is it helpful? Is it effective in encouraging and pushing this person toward where God wants them to be? So, as it pertains to that, hear what the Lord would say to you personally. Hear what the Spirit would say to you. Ask Him for the wisdom of Christ, because we need wisdom. We need discernment 
like Jesus has, of different people, different situations, different things, what do they need? What do they need? And he models that for us in the letters to the churches. So let's get started. That's just an introduction. First the praise, then the promise. So no problem here that that Jesus brings up. First the praise, verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So first thing to notice, this open door, closed door language, a little confusing when you read it. What I think Jesus is talking about is salvation. An open door is coming into the kingdom of God, being saved. A short door would be, you're not in the kingdom. You're not saved. And what's happening is people, particularly Jews, are telling these Gentile Christians, like you, assuming most of you are Gentiles, we're in the kingdom as Jews, you are not. We're in the kingdom. Doors open to us, but not to you. Now, why would they say that? Well, we have the patriarchs. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are our fathers. We have the covenants. We have the law of Moses. And who are you, Gentiles? What do you have? Oh, that's right, you're pagans. And you're worshiping a false Messiah, this Jesus person. So, yeah, when you talk about Yahweh and you're you're claiming the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus, like, we don't want to hear that. That's not for you. That's for us, the Old Testament. That's what the Jews are saying. And what does Jesus say? How does Jesus respond to that? Yeah, don't listen to those people. They might seem like an authority on the subject, but they're not. They're not. He says in verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. In other words, yeah, I'm renaming their church so that you know who they really are. They're no longer First Street Synagogue in Philadelphia. They're Synagogue of Satan. It's generally not a good thing when Jesus puts Satan into the name of your church. That's not a positive. That's not like a good name change, like take a vote on that. But that's what he does. He says, I'm renaming the church so you know the reality. These are not my people. Spiritually, because what matters? Your ethnicity, your spiritual background, Faith in Jesus Christ, that is what matters. Believe on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. The kingdom of God is open to you. Deny him, resist him, do not confess Jesus as Lord and the kingdom is shut to you. And he's in charge, saying don't listen to those people. They don't know what they're talking about. I do. Listen to me. I think some of you need to hear that Jesus' words are the only ones that matter as it relates to you and God. Think about it. What other voices do you have in your head 
things people have said to you over the years related to God. Often it's an authority figure. It's a parent. It's, it's maybe uh, someone in the workplace. Maybe it's someone you respect. Maybe it's a spouse. They've said something to you about you and God or about God, and that's like in there deep. God could never love you. God can never forgive you. A good God would not let that happen to you. You know, God helps those who help themselves, and you're not doing a real good job of that. You fill in the blank. But we have those things that, that they get in there deep. And I think Jesus would say, let me be the loudest voice. If someone said something to you and Jesus and God's word disagree with that, he's always right. And they're always wrong. And I think some of you, the Lord just, you need to hear that. These Christians did. They were getting told something that wasn't true, but it probably felt like it was true. Second thing I want to highlight here, I know your works. I know your works. Sometimes that, that, that's a sense of judgment in the Bible when you hear that. Not here. Not here. Jesus is locked in 100% to everything that's happening in this church. Did, do you know that? Like he, is, he sees everything. He is locked in every act of service, every good work, everything that you're doing that we're doing as a church, he sees it. When you feel like no one sees what you're doing, Jesus does. When no one says thank you, nice to get a thank you. Jesus does. He's saying thank you. I know your works. I see them. When you get forgotten, when you're just doing things over and over and over again, no one says anything. I know your works. So I want that tape to play in your mind every time you, you feel discouraged or you're tempted to feel discouraged because what's the point? Does anyone see what I'm doing? Does it matter? Does it even matter? It does. Jesus, for every true church, is locked in 100%. How amazing is that? That he loves the church that much. How motivating is that? I know I can, okay, you know, like, I need to have the praise of man. I, I, I need to feel like that puts wind in my sails. And, and like I just said, yeah, we need to encourage each other. That's the Lord encouraging us through each other. But if it doesn't come, I'm not crushed. I'm not devastated. I, it's not like I can't go on because I know that Jesus sees what I'm doing. It's so encouraging. Verse 8, look at it with me. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, some of you need to hear that Jesus praises a church with very little power, especially growing up, most of us did, in the United States. You're tempted to freak out 
when Christian values or Christian morals or churches are pushed to the margins of society. Like, what's happening? This is really bad. You expect Jesus to say to these Christians, take back that city. Take back that country. Go get you some power, Christians. And he doesn't. Because that's not how the kingdom of God comes, is it? Don't believe the political consultants who would use you, (laughs) who would use your religion for their advantage. We're not about obvious worldly power. Our greatest triumph, friends, our hero moment is the death of our Savior on a cross. Who also happens to be God. So just let that sink in, how upside down that is to the world, how countercultural that is. That's our moment. That's what we hang our hat on. Yeah, we have a great and glorious Savior who was murdered who allowed himself willingly to be killed. That's confusing. And yet that's where the power is. The power of God unto salvation is the gospel. 2 Corinthians hits this theme so clearly. Um, Pastor Trevor mentioned it in his prayer today. We sang about it. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect, most fully brought about in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What? How does that make sense? 2 Corinthians 13, 4. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives in the power of God. So life and power come from death and weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is just an area of worldliness I think the Lord wants to cleanse out of the church. It's just worldliness. That we would think like the world. When I'm strong, then I'm strong. When I'm powerful, then I'm powerful. When I'm popular, then I'm popular. That's the opposite. You know, if God gives us influence as a church, great. Uh, If God gives us growth, great. If God gives us more influence, uh, uh, if God gives us a, a bigger budget, great. But those things will test a church. Do you really believe that holding fast to the word of God and the gospel and serving and sacrificial love, that that's how the kingdom comes? Do you really believe it? Because it'll be tested, especially here, if you're given some kind of success by a worldly measure and standard. And we need to be ready to pass that test. We need to think the way that God thinks. We need to think with gospel thoughts not worldly thoughts. When we are weak and lowly and humble, then we are strong. And that's what this church was. That's why he praises them. Outwardly, it didn't look like much, but inwardly, 
there's a deeper power. The power under the power is the gospel, is Jesus. Okay, that's the praise. Now the promise. Verse 10, and I want to camp here for a little while. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now we're going to do some Bible work here because this is probably the most commonly cited verse in the Bible for those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. That is that Jesus will return secretly in a first stage before the hour of trial. Now, it's usually thought to be seven years, uh, which those who would take that view draw from Daniel chapter 9, and that's a whole other discussion of you know, Daniel. It's difficult to interpret. But they would say, okay, before the hour of trial, Jesus, you can't see him. He, you know, no one sees him. He returns, and he physically removes all Christians from the earth. That's what some would take this verse to mean, verse 10 in particular. Um, some of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Like, What in the Sam Hill is this kid talking about? When is this going to be over? Just hang in there. That's fine. You, know, you just listen in and maybe you'll get something out of it, I hope. But others of you, I'm guessing this is very familiar and, and very common. And, and maybe you've been taught it by, by a pastor or a church or maybe you've uh, ex- been exposed to it through popular Christian literature. So I want to talk about it a little bit. Before we dig in, um, let me just say that although I don't share that view, I believe the Bible teaches the rapture, I believe in the rapture, but I believe it happens on Je- Jesus' single public return at the end. We are caught up in the air with him uh, in that moment, right? physically, for those who are on the earth at that time, yes. Um, after the time of tribulation. So even though I don't share the view of a pre-tribulation, pre-trial rapture, um, let me just say there are Christian men and women, scholars whom I respect, uh, who hold that view. They love the Lord. I know that. They come to their view honestly. They, they hold the Bible as their authority. We will be in heaven together. This is not a first order issue. We agree on the essentials of Jesus' second coming. He's going to come. You know, it's all going to happen in the end. We're we're disagreeing on some of the timing and and events. So let me just say that clearly. But the verse does mean something. You know, we can't punt on it. We can't say, well, I'll figure it out in heaven. I mean, we will, but we do have to deal with the text. We can't skip it just because it's hard. Um, And while I think that interpretation, rapture interpretation, is possible, I don't think it's probable. And I want to explain to you why. And I could give you lots of reasons, but for time's sake, I'll just pick two. Okay? Two reasons why I don't believe that. Number one, Jesus is promising spiritual, not physical, protection. Jesus is promising spiritual, not physical protection. So look at verse 10. We're going to look at it closely. I will keep you from the hour of trial. 
does that mean physically remove or does it mean spiritually protect? That's the question. Grammatically, if you look at the Greek, and both are possible. But what seems more likely based on context, that's the question. What seems more likely when you have a choice to make? Uh, what do you find in the letters as far as context? What do you find in Revelation? What would fit? And it's just a little tip. When you're unsure of what a Bible verse means, uh, one of the best things you can do is look around it. Look at the context. Look at the, you know, just keep working your way out further and further to the verses around it, then to the book that it's in, then to the testament that it's in, then to the whole Bible. And what can help me understand this little verse right here? So flip back, Revelation 2.10. Look at it with me. Letter to Smyrna, very similar to the letter to Philadelphia, so that's a clue for us. We find Jesus saying in verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So here in the letter to Smyrna, you'll be thrown in prison. You're going to have tribulation. Trust me, even if it costs you your life, your physical life, it would be confusing to then move to another letter right after that and say, Oh, no, don't worry about physical suffering. I'm going to remove you from the earth. So you don't have to endure that. In the other letters, in the whole book of Revelation, there is a strong theme of conquering through suffering, persevering through it, not being removed from it. To persevere the way that Jesus did. This is a condition for going to heaven. So it feels out of context to me to suddenly be talking about removing Christians from the earth so they don't have to suffer. Okay, so let's think about other texts from the same author. Okay, what, what does John have to say maybe elsewhere that would help us? Turn to John 17, Gospel of John, chapter 17. high priestly prayer of Jesus. So he's praying for his people, his heart for his people. Verse 15. Jesus says, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, speaking of his disciples, speaking of all Christians, but that you keep them from the evil one. You can't see it, but he uses the same two Greek words here, keep from, keep them from. Very similar. So this is very interesting. Jesus is directly contrasting removal from the earth. He says, no, Father, don't do that. Don't take them out of the world. That's not what I'm asking you for. I'm not asking that. I'm asking that you protect them spiritually, keep them from the evil one. 
And he's using very similar language. John is, is, is using very similar language to what he's using in Revelation chapter 3. So that, that's a strong clue to me. The rest of the New Testament reads very similar to this idea and this theme. Yeah, it's going to be hard. Trials are going to come. But the Lord will preserve you. He will hold you fast. As you persevere, he will preserve you, is a simple way to say it. So that's number one. Number two, second reason why I don't think it's probable that a rapture is going to happen before tribulation. This verse has to mean something for the church in Philadelphia. This verse has to mean something for the church in Philadelphia. If you take it, verse 10, as strictly future, the rapture at the first return of Jesus, which obviously hasn't happened yet, what meaning would it have for these Christians? What meaning would it have for them? I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's going to happen at least 1,900 years from now. So just to be clear, this has nothing to do with you. Only those Christians who are alive at that time. That, that's hard for me to believe. That's hard for me to believe that if you're sitting in the congregation on that Sunday when this letter is read, that you're connecting those dots to say, oh, wait a minute, this hour of trial that we're talking about, that's not about me. That's not about our church. That's about a long, long time from now. Or just when Jesus returns. That doesn't seem like a natural, plain meaning or sense that they would get. In fact, Jesus actually says, because you have kept my word, because you, Philadelphians, have kept my word, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. It's a reward. He's saying, I'm going to preserve you because you're holding on and persevering in me. You're keeping my word, so I'm going to keep you. So how, how could that be that it really doesn't have any meaning for them? I think it's better to see this as referring to the Lord's spiritual protection for them and all future Christians who keep his word. Meaning in those moments when there's trials, tribulations, not the wrath of God coming toward you, but just, you know, the wrath of Satan. It's a fallen world. Things are hard. Things are difficult as, as Revelation is going to unfold for us in the middle chapters uh, with more detail and, and, and imagery that the Lord is going to keep you. He's going to make sure you don't bail on Jesus when it gets hard. I think that's more likely what the text means. It's a sweet promise for all believers that although <laughs> Satan and all hell would endeavor to shake your soul, no, I will never, never forsake. That's a great promise. I think it's for us, whether we're alive when Jesus returns or not. So I hope that's helpful to you. Um, you can chase me down, hunt me down. If you've got questions about all that, you may not be able to find me, but you can try. Uh, so let's move on. Verse 11, some of the really sweet stuff here. 
I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. If you will finish the race and hold fast to the gospel, Jesus promises permanence. This is one of the frustrating things about life. <laughs> Lack of permanence. Um, the presence of those you love. They come and they go. We had a lot of funerals this week and you feel that frustration. The lack of permanence. The good things don't last. Um, your kids grow up and leave. And it was fun having them. And now they're gone. And what do we do? At some point, you lose your spouse. That's hard. I had a great marriage. I wish it could have gone on. You have to leave a home that you love, a church that you love. You don't want to. It's hard. I want the good things to last. And they don't. Ecclesiastes teaches that, doesn't it? For everything there is a season. There's a time to gain. There's a time to lose. There's a time to seek. There's a time to find. There's a time for all different things. It's, it's up and down. Jesus is saying all that impermanence is going to end. Your life will be like a pillar in the temple of God, fixed, permanent, never going to have to leave. You're never going to have to leave. It will be love without parting. How many of you long for love without parting? Someone you love, you don't have to part with. How many of you long for good triumphing over evil? And it's staying that way. Just like Mr. Incredible says, you know, sometimes you just wish the world would stay saved for a little while. That's how we feel. Like, can something just last a little bit longer? Good conversations, good food, good relationships, good Sundays, good sermons. Every once in a while, you know, you get a good one. Good Sundays where we're all together. It's like, man, that Sunday was amazing. Like God was just moving and felt his presence, felt the spirit. And then it's like, well, okay, we got to go home and maybe next Sunday ain't going to be like that. All that is going to end. And you have to use your imagination. You have to think about it. You have to imagine what will it be like that every day will be filled from sundown to or sunset, sundown to sunset, all day, every day, 24-7, with better, grander versions of the people and things and places that you love in this life. Just imagine it. You never have to leave the party. 
it's not going to end. There's no end of the night. It's over. There's no end of the worship service. It's never over. It's permanent forever. It's locked in like a pillar that cannot be moved. That's you. That's your life. And I just want you to hear and think about a God who would make that sweet of a promise to you. A God who would tell you that. A God who would say, this is what it's going to be like. How much does he love you? Can you believe that he loves you? That this life and its impermanence is just going to be over so fast and that's forever. I want to be on Jesus' side. <laughs> I want to be with him. I want this. And I want this for you. And maybe some of you need to believe on the name of Jesus so that you would be there as a pillar. It's just, it's insane not to. Let's pray. Father, I pray uh, out of a spirit of love for all those here, all those listening, that they would come and believe on the name of Jesus, that they would trust you, that these promises are true. Give them a vision of the true good life, the real life that starts now. But when we die, when you return, oh, Lord, it goes on forever in all its fullness. Give us comfort in knowing that those that we love who have trusted in you, that's where they are. That's what they're experiencing. They never have to leave the presence of Jesus. And we want to get there, Lord. Help us to conquer, preserve us, keep us. We pray in your great name. Amen. All right. Let's... Uh Let's stand as we sing a song of response. Encourage you to just think about and process what you've heard. Um, take the time to pray uh, or sing praise, pra praise, prayers and praise to the Lord.
split the sea so I can walk right through it. Jesus, you brought me to the Father. You rescued me so I can stand benediction on you as people. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all.